Chapter 6 of Spinning Wheel Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bartinetfeld Spinning Wheel Stories by Louisa May Alcott The Banner of Beaumanoir Larks were singing in the clear sky over Dinan. The hillsides were white with hosts of blooming cherry trees, and the valley golden with willow blossoms. The grey tower of the good Duchess Anne was hung with garlands of ivy and gay with tufts of fragrant wallflowers, and along the fosse the shadows deepened daily as the young leaves thickened on the interlacing branches overhead. Women sang while they beat their clothes in the pool. Wooden shoes clattered to and fro as the girls brought water from the fountain in Place Saint-Louis. Men with their long hair, embroidered jackets and baggy breeches drank cider at the inn doors, and the great Breton horses shook their high collars till the bells rang again as they passed along the roads that wound between wide fields of colza, buckwheat and clover. Up at the chateau, which stood near the ruins of the ancient castle, the great banner streamed in the wind, showing, as its folds blew out, the device and motto of the Beaumanoir. Two clasped hands and the legend, En tout chemin, loyauté. In the courtyard, hounds brayed, horses pranced, and servants hurried about, for the count was going to hunt the wild boar. Presently away they went, with the merry music of horns, the clatter of hoofs and the blithe ring of voices, till the pleasant clamour died away in a distant wood, where mistletoe clung to the great oaks, and manias and dolmens, mysterious relics of the druids, were to be seen. From one of the windows of the chateau tower a boy's face looked out, full of eager longing, a fine, strong face, but sullen now, with black brows, dark, restless eyes, and lips set, as if rebellious thoughts were stirring in his mind. He watched the gay cavalcade disappear, until a sunny silence settled over the landscape, broken only by the lark and the sound of a girl's voice singing. As he listened, the frown smoothed itself from his brow, and his eyes brightened, when it rested on a blue-gowned, white-capped figure, sprinkling webs of linen spread to bleach in the green meadow by the river Rance. If I may not hunt, I'll away to Yvonne and take a holiday. She can tell better tales than any in this weary book, the bane of my life. As he spoke, the boy struck a volume that lay on the wide ledge with a petulant energy that sent it fluttering down into the courtyard below. Half ashamed and half amused, young Gaston peeped to see if this random shot had hit anyone. But all was quiet and deserted now, so with a boyish laugh and a daring glance at the dangerous descent, he said to the doves cooing on the roof overhead, Here's a fine pretext for escape. Being locked in, how can I get my lessons unless I fetch the book? 
tell no tales of the time I linger, and you shall be well fed, my pretty birds. Then, swinging himself out as if it were no new feat, he climbed boldly down through the ivy that half hid the carved flowers and figures which made a ladder for his agile feet. The moment he touched ground he raced away like a hound in full scent of the meadow, where he was welcomed by a rosy, brown-eyed lass, whose white teeth shone as she laughed to see him leap the moat, dodge behind the wall, and come bounding toward her, his hair streaming in the wind, and his face full of boyish satisfaction in this escapade. "'The old tale!' he panted as he threw himself down upon the grass and flung the recovered book beside him. This dreary Latin drives me mad, and I will not waste such days as this poring over dull pages like a priest, when I should be hunting like a knight and gentleman. Nay, dear Gaston, but you ought, for obedience is the first duty of the knight and honour of the gentleman, answered the girl in a soft reproachful tone which seemed to touch the lad, as the voice of a master tames a high-mettled horse. Had Father Nevin trusted to my honour, I would not have run away, but he locked me in like a monk in a cell, and that I will not bear. Just one hour, Yvonne, one little hour of freedom, then I will go back, else there will be no sport for me tomorrow, said the lad recklessly pulling up the bluets that starred the grass about him. Ah, if I were set to such a task, I would so gladly learn it that I might be a fitter friend for you, said the girl, reverently turning the pages of the book she could not read. No need of that. I like you as you are, and by my faith I doubt your great willingness, for when I last played tutor and left you to spell out the pretty legend of Saint-Coventin and his little fish, I found you fast asleep with the blessed book upon the floor, laughed Gaston, turning the tables on his mentor with great satisfaction. The girl laughed also as she retorted, My tutor should not have left me to play with his dogs. I bore my penance better than you and did not run away. Come now, we'll be merry. Will you talk or shall I sing while you rest this hot head and dream of horse and hound and spearing the wild boar? added Yvonne, smoothing the locks of hair scattered on the grass with a touch as gentle as if the hands were of that of a lady and not that of a peasant, rough with hard work. Since I may not play a man's part yet, amuse me like a boy with the old tales your mother used to tell when we watch the faggots blaze in the winter nights. It is long since I have heard one, and I am never tired of hearing of the deeds I mean to match, if not outdo, some day. Let me think a bit till I remember your favourites. And do you listen to the bees above there in the willow, setting you a good example, idle boy, said Yvonne, spreading a coarse iron for its head, while she sat beside him wrecking her brain for tales to beguile this truant hour. Her father was the Count's forester, and when the Countess had died some sixteen years before, leaving a month-old boy, good dame Gillian had taken the motherless baby and nursed and reared him with her little girl, so faithfully and tenderly that the Count could never forget the loyal service.
As babies, the two slept in one cradle. As children, they played and quarreled together. And as boy and girl, they defended, comforted and amused each other. But time brought inevitable changes, and both felt that the hour of separation was near. For while Yvonne went on leading the peasant life to which she was born, Gaston was receiving the education befitting a young count. The chaplain taught him to read and write, with lessons in sacred history and a little Latin. Of the forester he learned woodcraft, and his father taught him horsemanship and the use of arms, accomplishments considered all-important in those days. Gaston cared nothing for books, except such as told tales of chivalry, but dearly loved athletic sports, and at sixteen rode the most fiery horse without a fall, handled the sword admirably, could kill a boar at the first shot, and longed ardently for war, that he might prove himself a man. A brave, high-spirited, generous boy, with a very tender spot in his heart for the good woman who had been a mother to him, and his little foster sister, whose idol he was. For days he seemed to forget these humble friends, and led a gay, active life of his age and rank. But if wounded in the chase, worried by the chaplain, disappointed in any plan, or in disgrace for any prank, he turned instinctively to Dame Gillian and Yvonne, sure of help and comfort from mind and body. Companionship with him had refined the girl, and given her glimpses of a world into which she could never enter, yet where she could follow with eager eyes and high hopes the fortunes of this dear Gaston, who was both her prince and brother. Her influence over him was great, for she was of a calm and patient nature, as well as brave and prudent beyond her years. His will was law, yet in seeming to obey, she often led him, and he thanked her for the courage with which she helped him to control his fiery temper and strong will. Now, as she glanced at him, she saw that he was already growing more tranquil, under the soothing influences of the murmuring river, the soft flicker of the sunshine and a blessed sense of freedom. So, while she twisted her distaff, she told the stirring tales of warriors, saints and fairies, whom all Breton peasants honor, love and fear. But best of all was the tale of Gaston's own ancestor, Jean de Beaumanoir, the hero of Ploermel, where, when sorely wounded and parched with thirst, he cried for water, and Geoffrey Dubois answered, like a grim old warrior as he was, Drink thy blood, Beaumanoir, and the thirst will pass. And he drank, and the battle madness seized him, and he slew ten men, winning the fight against great odds, to his everlasting glory. Ah, those were the times to live in. If they could only come again, I would be a second Jean. Gaston sprung to his feet as he spoke, all aglow with the warlike ardor of his race, and Yvonne looked up at him, sure that he would prove himself a worthy descendant of the great baron and his wife, the daughter of the brave Duke Wesconin. But you shall not be treacherously killed as he was, for I will save you as the peasant woman saved poor Gilles de Bretagne when starving in the tower. 
or fight for you as Jeanne d'Arc fought for her lord, answered Yvonne, dropping her distaff to stretch out her hand to him, for she too was on her feet. Gaston took the faithful hand and, pointing to the white banner floating over the ruins of the old castle, said heartily, We will always stand by one another and be true to the motto of our house till death. We will, answered the girl, and both kept the promise loyally, as we shall see. Just at that moment, the sound of hoofs made the young enthusiast start and looked toward the road that wound through the valley to the hill. An old man on slowly pacing mule was all they saw, but the change that came over both was comical in its suddenness, for the gallant knight turned to a truant schoolboy, daunted by the sight of his tutor, while the rival of the maid of Orléans grew pale with dismay. I am lost if he spy me, for my father vowed I should not hunt again unless I did my task. He will see me if I run, and where can I hide till he has passed? whispered Gaston, ashamed of his panic, yet unwilling to pay the penalty of his prank. But quick-witted Yvonne saved him, for lifting one end of the long web of linen, she showed a hollow when some great stone had been removed, and Gaston slipped into the green nest, over which the linen lay smoothly when replaced. On came the chaplain, glancing sharply about him, being of an austere and suspicious nature. He saw nothing, however, but the peasant girl in her quaint cap and wooden sabots, singing to herself as she leaned against a tree, with her earthen jug in her hand. The mule paused in the light shadow of the willows to crop a mouthful of grass before climbing the hill and the chaplain seemed glad to rest a moment, for the day was warm and the road dusty. Come hither, child, and give me a draught of water, he called, and the girl ran to fill her pitcher, offering it with a low reverence. Thanks, daughter, a fine day for the bleaching, but over warm for much travel. Go to your work, child, I will tarry a moment in the shade before I return to my hard task of sharpening a dull youth's wit, said the old man when he had drunk. And with a frowning glance at the room where he had left his prisoner, he drew a breviary from his pocket and began to read, while the mule browsed along the roadside. Yvonne went to sprinkling the neglected linen, wondering with mingled anxiety and girlish merriment how Gaston fared. The sun shone hotly on the dry cloth, and as she approached the boy's hiding place, a stir would have betrayed him had the chaplain's eyes been lifted. Sprinkle me quickly, I am stifling in this hole, whispered an imploring voice. Drink thy blood, Beaumanoir, and the thirst will pass, quoted Yvonne taking a naughty satisfaction in the ignominious captivity of the willful boy. A long sigh was the only answer he gave, and taking pity on him, she made a little hollow in the linen where she knew his head lay, and poured in water till a choking sound assured her Gaston had enough. The chaplain looked up, but the girl coughed loudly as she went to refill her jug, with such a demure face that he suspected nothing, and presently ambled away to seek his refractory pupil. The moment he disappeared, a small earthquake seemed to take place under the linen, 
for it flew up violently, and a pair of long legs waved joyfully in the air as Gaston burst into a ringing laugh, which Yvonne echoed heartily. Then, springing up, he said, throwing back his wet hair and shaking his finger at her, You dared not betray me, but you nearly drowned me, wicked girl. I cannot stop for vengeance now, but I'll toss you into the river some day and leave you to get out as you can. Then he was off as quickly as he came, eager to reach his prison again before the chaplain came to hear the unlearned lesson. Yvonne watched him till he climbed safely in at the high window and disappeared with a wave of the hand, when she, too, went back to her work, little dreaming what brave parts both were to play in dangers and captivities of which these youthful pranks and perils were but a foreshadowing. Two years later, in the month of March 1793, the, the insurrection broke out in Vendée, and Gaston had his wish, for the old count had been an officer in the king's household and hastened to prove his loyalty. Yvonne's heart beat high with pride as she saw her foster brother ride gallantly away beside his father, with the hundred armed vassals behind them and the white banner fluttering above their heads in the fresh wind. She longed to go with him, but her part was to watch and wait, to hope and pray, till the hour came when she, like many another woman in those days, could prove herself as brave as a man and freely risk her life for those she loved. Four months later the heavy tidings reached him that the old count was killed and Gaston taken prisoner. Great was the lamentation among the old men, women and children left behind, but they had little time for sorrow for a band of the marauding Vendeans burned the chateau and laid waste to the abbey. Now, mother, I must up and away to find and rescue Gaston. I promised, and if he lives, it shall be done. Let me go. You are safe now, and there is no rest for me till I know how he fares, said Yvonne, when the raid was over and the frightened peasants ventured to return from the neighboring forests, whither they had hastily fled for protection. Go, my girl, and bring me news of our young lord. May you lead him safely home again to rule over us, answered Dame Gillian, devoted still, for her husband was reported dead with his master, yet she let her daughter go without a murmur, feeling that no sacrifice was too great. So Yvonne set out, taking with her Gaston's pet dove and the little sum of money carefully hoarded for her marriage portion. The pretty winged creature, frightened by the destruction of its home, had flown to her for refuge, and she had cherished it for its master's sake. Now when it would not leave her, but came circling around her head, a league away from Dinan, she accepted the good omen and made the bird the companion of her perilous journey. There is no room to tell all the dangers, disappointments and fatigues endured before she found Gaston, but after being often misled by false rumours, she at last discovered that he was a prisoner in Fort Pontievre. His own reckless courage had brought him there, for in one of the many skirmishes in which he had taken part, he ventured too far away from his men and was captured after fighting desperately to cut his way out. Now, 
Alone in his cell he raged like a caged eagle, feeling that there was no hope of escape, for the fort stood on a plateau of precipitous rock washed on two sides by the sea. He had heard of the massacre of the royalist emigrants who landed there and tried to prepare himself for a like fate, hoping to die as bravely as young Sombreuil, who was shot with twenty others on what was afterwards named the Champ de Martyr. His last words when ordered by the executioner to kneel were, I do it, but one knee I bend for my God, the other for my king. Day after day Gaston looked down from his narrow window, past which the gulls flew screaming, and watched the fishers at their work, the women gathering seaweed on the shore, and the white sails flitting across the bay of Quiberon. Bitterly did he regret the willfulness which brought him there, well knowing that if he had obeyed orders, he would now be free to find his father's body and avenge his death. Oh, for one day of liberty, one hope of escape, one friend to cheer this dreadful solitude, he cried when weeks had passed and he seemed utterly forgotten. As he spoke, he shook the heavy bars with impotent strength, then bent his head as if to hide even for himself the few hot tears wrung from him by captivity and despair. Standing so with eyes too dim to see, something brushed against his hair, and a bird lit on the narrow ledge. He thought it was a gull and paid no heed. But in a moment a soft coo started him, and looking up he saw a white dove struggling to get in. Planchette, he cried, and the pretty creature flew to his hand, pecking at his lips in the old caressing way he knew so well. My faithful bird, God bless thee, exclaimed the poor lad, holding the dove close to his cheek to hide the trembling of his lip. So touched, so glad was he to find in his dreary prison even a dumb friend and comforter. But Blanchette had her part to play, and presently fluttered back to the window ledge, cooing loudly as she pecked at something underneath her wing. Then Gaston remembered how he used to send messages to Yvonne by this carrier dove, and with a thrill of joy looked for the token, hardly daring to hope that any would be found. Yes, there. Tied carefully among the white feathers was a tiny roll of paper with these words rudely written on it. Be ready. Help will come. Why? The brave girl, the loyal heart. I might have known she would keep a promise and come to save me. And Gaston dropped on his knees in gratitude. Blanchette meantime tripped about the cell on her little rosy feet, ate a few crumbs of the hard bread, dipped her beak in the jug of water, dressed her feathers daintily, then flew to the bars and called him. He had nothing to send back by the sure messenger but a lock of hair, and this he tied with the same thread in place of the note. Then, kissing the bird, he bade it go, watching the silver wings flash in the sunshine as it flew away, carrying joy with it and leaving hope behind. After that... The little courier came often unperceived, carrying letters to and fro, for Yvonne sent bits of paper, and Gaston wrote his answers with his blood and a quill from Blanchette's wing. He thus learned how Yvonne was living in a fisher's hut on the beach, 
and working for his rescue as well as she dared. Every day she might be seen gathering seaweed on the rocks or twirling her distaff at the door of the dilapidated hut, not as a young girl, but as an old woman, for she had stained her fair skin, put on ragged clothes, and hidden her fresh face under the penthouse cap worn by the women of Quiberon. Her neighbors thought her a poor soul left desolate by the war and let her live unmolested. So she worked on secretly and steadily, playing her part well, and biding at time till the long hempen rope was made, the sharp file procured unsuspected, and a boat ready to receive the fugitives. Her plan was perilously simple, but the only one possible. For Gaston was well guarded, and out of that lofty cell it seemed that no prisoner could escape without wings. A bird and a woman lent him those wings, and his daring flight was a nine days' wonder at the fort. Only a youth accustomed to feats of agility and strength could have safely made that dangerous escape along the face of the cliff that rose straight up from the shore. But Gaston was well trained, and the boyish pranks that used to bring him into dire disgrace now helped to save his life. Thus, when the order came, written in the rude hand he had taught Yvonne long ago, Pull up the thread which Blanchette will bring at midnight, watch for a light in the bay, then come down and Santa Barbara protect you. He was ready, for the tiny file of watchspring, brought by the bird, had secretly done its work, and several bars were loose. He knew that the attempt might cost him his life, but was willing to gain liberty even at that price, for imprisonment seemed worse than death to his impatient spirit. The jailer went his last round, the great bell struck the appointed hour, and Gaston stood at the window, straining his eyes to catch the first ray of the promised light, when the soft whirr of wings gladdened his ear, and Blanchette arrived, looking scared and wet and weary, for rain fell, the wind blew fitfully, and the poor bird was unused to such wild work as this. But obedient to its training, it flew to its master, and no angel could have been more welcome than the storm-beaten little creature as it nestled in its bosom, while he untangled a length of strong thread wound about one of its feet. He knew what to do, and tying a bit of the broken bar to one end, as a weight, he let it down, praying that no cruel gust would break or blow it away. In a moment a quick jerk at the thread bade him pull again. A cord came up, and when that was firmly secured, a second jerk was the signal for the last and most important haul. Up came the stout rope, knotted here and there to add safety and strength to the hands and feet that were to climb down that frail ladder, unless some cruel fate dashed the poor boy dead upon the rocks below. The rope was made fast to an iron staple inside. The bars were torn away, and Gaston crept through the narrow opening to perch on the ledge without, while Blanchette flew down to tell Yvonne he was coming. The moment the distant spark appeared, he bestirred himself, set his teeth, and boldly began the dangerous descent. Rain blinded him, the wind beat him against the rock, bruising hands and knees, and the way seemed endless as he climbed down slowly, clinging with the clutch of a drowning man, and blessing Yvonne for the knots that kept him from slipping when the gust blew him to and fro. 
More than once he thought it was all over, but the good rope held fast and strength and courage nerved heart and limbs. One greater than Saint Barbe upheld him and he dropped at last, breathless and bleeding, beside the faithful Yvonne. There was no time for words, only a grasp of the hand, a sigh of gratitude, and they were away to the boat that tossed on the wild water with a single rower in his place. It is our Oel. I found him looking for you. He is true as steel. In, in and off, or you are lost, whispered Yvonne, flinging a cloak about Gaston, thrusting a purse, a sword and a flask into his hand and holding the boat while he leapt in. But you, he cried, I cannot leave you in peril. After all, you have dared and done for me. No one suspects me. I am safe. Go to my mother. She will hide you, and I will follow soon. Waiting for no further speech, she pushed the boat off and watched it vanish in the darkness, then went away to give thanks and rest after her long work and excitement. Gaston reached home safely, and Dame Gillian concealed him in the ruins of the abbey, till anxiety for Yvonne drove him out to seek and rescue in his turn. For she did not come, and when a returning soldier brought word that she had been arrested in her flight and sent to Nantes, Gaston could not rest, but disguising himself as a peasant went to find her, accompanied by faithful Oel, who loved Yvonne and would gladly die for her and his young master. Their hearts sunk when they discovered that she was in the Boufflet, an old fortress, once a royal residence and now a prison, crowded with unfortunate and innocent creatures, arrested on the slightest pretexts and guillotined or drowned by the infamous Carrier. Hundreds of men and women were there, suffering terribly, and among them was Yvonne, brave still, but with no hope of escape for few were saved, and then only by some lucky accident. Like a sister of mercy, she went among the poor souls crowded together in the great halls, hungry, cold, sick and despairing, and they clung to her as if she were some strong, sweet saint who could deliver them or teach them how to die. After some weeks of this terrible life, her name was called one morning on the list for that day's execution, and she rose to join the sad procession setting forth. Which is it to be? she asked, as she passed one of the men who guarded them, a rough fellow whose face was half hidden by a shaggy beard. You will be drowned, we have no time to waste on women, was the brutal answer. As the words passed his lips, a slip of paper was pressed into her hand, and these words breathed into her by a familiar voice. I am here. It was Gaston, in the midst of enemies, bent on saving her at the risk of his life, remembering all he owed her and the motto of his race. The shock of this discovery nearly betrayed them both and turned her so white that the woman next put her arm about her, saying sweetly, Courage, my sister, it is soon over. I fear nothing now, cried Yvonne, and went on to take her place in the cart, looking so serene and happy that those about thought her already fit for heaven. No need to repeat the dreadful history of the Noyade. It is enough to say that in the confusion of the moment Yvonne found opportunity to read and destroy the little paper, which said briefly, 
When you are flung into the river, call my name and float. I shall be near. She understood, and being placed with a crowd of wretched women on the old vessel which lay on in the river Loire, she employed every moment in loosening the rope that tied her hands and keeping her eye on the tall, bearded man who moved about seeming to do his work, while his blood boiled with suppressed wrath and his heart ached with unavailing pity. It was dusk before the end came for Yvonne, and she was all unnerved by the sad sights she had been forced to see. But when rude hands seized her, she made ready for the plunge, sure that Gaston would be near. He was, for in the darkness and uproar he could leap after her unseen, and while she floated he cut the rope, then swam down the river with her hand upon his shoulder till they dared to land. Both were nearly spent with the excitement and exertion of that dreadful hour. But Oel waited for them on the shore and helped Gaston carry poor Yvonne into a deserted house where they gave her fire, food, dry garment and the gladdest welcome one human creature ever gave to another. Being a robust peasant, the girl came safely through hardships that would have killed or crazed a frailer creature and she was soon able to rejoice with the brave fellows over this escape so audaciously planned and so boldly carried out. They dared stay but a few hours, and before dawn were hastening through the least frequented ways towards home, finding safety in the distracted state of the country which made fugitives no unusual sight and refugees plentiful. One more adventure, and that a happy one, completed their joy and turned their flight into a triumphant march. Pausing in the depths of the great forest of Unodet to rest, the two young men went to find food, leaving Yvonne to tend the fire and make ready to cook the venison they hoped to bring. It was nightfall, and another day would see them in Dinan, they hoped. But the lads had consented to pause for the girl's sake, for she was worn out with their rapid flight. They were talking of their adventures in high spirits when Gaston laid his hand on Oel's mouth and pointed to a green slope before them. An early moon gave light enough to show them a dark form moving quickly into the coppice, and something like the antlers of a stag showed above the tall brakes before they vanished. Slip around and drive him this way. I never miss my aim and we will sup royally tonight, whispered Gaston, glad to use the arms with which they had provided themselves. Oel slipped away, and presently a rustle in the wood betrayed the cautious approach of the deer. But he was off before a shot could be fired, and the disappointed hunters followed long and far, resolved not to go back empty-handed. They had to give it up, however, and were partially consoled by a rabbit, which Oel flung over his shoulder, while Gaston, forgetting caution, began to sing an old song the women of Brittany love so well. Quand vous étiez captif, Bertrand, fils de Bretagne, tous les fougeaux tournaient aussi dans la campagne. He got no further, for the stanza was finished by a voice that had often joined in the ballad, when Dame Gillian sang it to the children as she spun. Chaque femme apporte son écheveau de lin. Ce fut votre rançon, Messire du Guesclin. Both paused, thinking that some spirit of the wood mocked them, but a loud laugh and a familiar holo holo made Oel cry, 
the Forester. While Gaston dashed headlong into the thicket whence the sound came, there to find a jolly forester indeed, with a slain deer by his side, waiting to receive them with open arms. I taught you to stalk the deer and spear the boar, not to hunt your fellow creatures, my lord. But I forgive you, for it was well done, and I had a hard run to escape, he said, still laughing. But how came you here? cried both the youths, in great excitement for the good man was supposed to be dead with his old master. A long tale for which I have a short and happy answer. Come home to supper with me and I'll show you a sight that will gladden hearts and eyes, he answered, shouldering his load and leading the way to a deserted hermitage, which had served many a fugitive for shelter. As they went, Gaston poured out his story and told how Yvonne was waiting for them in the wood. Brave lads, and here is your reward, answered the forester, pushing open the door and pointing to the figure of a man with a pale face and bandaged head lying asleep beside the fire. It was the Count, sorely wounded, but alive, thanks to his devoted follower who had saved him when the fight was over, and after weeks of concealment, suffering and anxiety had brought him so far toward home. No need to tell of the happy meeting that night, nor of the glad return, for, though the chateau was in ruins, and lives were still in danger, they were all together, and the trials they had passed through only made the ties of love and loyalty between high and low more true and tender. Good Dame Gillian housed them all, and nursed her master back to health. Yvonne and Noël had a gay wedding in the course of time, and Gaston went to the wars again. A new chateau rose on the ruins of the old, and when the young lord took possession, he replaced the banner that was lost with one of fair linen, spun and woven by the two women who had been so faithful to him and his, but added a white dove above the clasped hands and golden legend, never so true as now, en tout chemin, loyauté. End of chapter 6